Now it did take me some time and, and lots of prayer to determine what to speak about this morning. You know, I think I've read just about everything in the Bible that has anything remotely to do with farewells and saying goodbye. And, and that was an interesting experience, but unfortunately it never led to a sermon. Uh, so as I do when I'm stuck, I, I went and mowed my lawn, cleared my mind, prayed and pleaded with the Lord. And, and it was the topic of love that kept floating around uh, in my mind. You know, particularly the necessity of loving Jesus. Now, and hence this morning, I, I'm going to preach a sermon that I have entitled, Leaving Your First Love. So the text of uh, scripture I'd like to consider is Revelation chapter 2. We're going to, to read the, the first seven verses. So this text is the first of seven letters addressed to various churches throughout Asia Minor. Now, these letters are addressed to, I believe, the church pastor and are a word from Jesus himself. And these were actual existing churches. These are real congregations. They were applicable directly to these congregations, but they are relevant to different types of churches throughout history, including our church. So if you have a Bible, could you open it to Revelation chapter 2, and let's read from, from verse 1. You know, hear the voice of God as he speaks to us. Now unto the angel of the church of Ephesus writes, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast laboured, and hast not fainted. And nevertheless I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I, I do thank you for this uh, day that you have given to us. Father, thank you for this church. Lord, thank you for your, your goodness and, and your faithfulness towards Lismore Bible Church. And Lord, thank you for the time that I have been able to spend here. Father, now as we come to your word this morning, we are ever aware that we, we, we need your help. And Father, we ask for that this morning. Uh, we do ask that the Holy Spirit would, would illuminate our minds, help us to, to understand uh, this text of Scripture. And Father, please, please grant to us the grace to, to apply this word where relevant. You know, Father, we come before you hungry this morning. Please, please feed us from your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> Ephesus was a famous and influential ancient city. In fact, it was the most important in Asia Minor. It boasted a population of somewhere between 250 and 500,000 people. It was a free city, meaning that it was self-governing. And it was also the residence of the Roman governor. 
Now, it was bustling with commerce and trade due to its strategic location. Uh, Ephesus possessed the primary harbour in Asia Minor and was located at the junction of four of the most important Roman roads in that region. And hence, this city was very affluent. Wealth and prosperity abounded. In a business sense, this was the place to be. Now, this town also possessed stunning infrastructure. The town actually had a theatre that would seat 25,000 people. And, you know, that's staggering for that time in history. But, at most, but its most significant landmark was the Temple of Artemis, or, or the Temple of Diana, as the Romans called it. And this particular temple is actually one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And, and it was a, a spectacular structure, supported by 127 pillars, believed to be 60 feet tall, and, and it was adorned with great sculptures. And this temple was particularly amazing because it was regarded as impregnable. And hence, it became a major bank of the ancient world. Kings kept all of their wealth in this temple. And it also became a refuge for notorious criminals. Of course, possessing such a temple meant worshipping Artemis was the primary religion in this city. This particular worship was unspeakably vile. Now, it's infamous for its ritual prostitution in its worship. Now, the city of Ephesus was certainly Satan's playground. It was known for its immorality, for its idolatry and satanic sorcery and superstition. And it was this famous ancient city that housed the equally famous church of Ephesus. Now, this church had a really rich history. It was the mother church of this particular area, the most influential. In fact, this church is believed to be responsible for sending out the other churches that the remaining six letters are addressed to. And think of the people who ministered in this particular congregation. The Apostle Paul, he ministered in this church for three years. Priscilla, Aquila and Apollos played a vital role in laying the foundations of this work. Young Timothy, he pastored at Ephesus. And church history tells us that the Apostle John also filled the pastorate. So talk about you know, wonderful preaching and teaching. There has been very few churches, if any, who have possessed such gifted men in the pulpit. This was certainly a privileged and blessed congregation that possessed a rich history. And it is to this church that this first letter is addressed to. And I'd like to consider the message that Jesus had for this church, because I believe it's incredibly relevant for our church and for us as individuals. And I want to consider this under two headings, they being the commendation and the criticism. So firstly, let's consider the commendation. Jesus, as the the chief church inspector, offers his findings from his assessment of this local congregation. The inspection that was conducted was very detailed. There are two Greek words that are translated no in English, and the term employed in verse 2 that describes the Lord's inspection refers to a complete and full knowledge, lacking nothing. 
So the Lord saw everything and he knew everything that there was to know about this local assembly. This was a complete and thorough inspection. Absolutely nothing could be hidden. You know, it must have been a somewhat scary preposition for the pastor to first read this letter you know, as it come across his desk. You know, I wonder what Jesus is going to say about this church. And then imagine the congregation as they are waiting for this letter to be read out, remembering nothing can be hid from Jesus. You can imagine the hearts of the people beginning the race, their palms feeling sweaty, their throats dry as they await the verdict. And there must have been a real sense of relief, for this letter begins with a glowing commendation. Now, Jesus saw all of these positive traits and he acknowledges them. Now, this church has much to be commended on, has much worth emulating, and Jesus praised what he saw in verses 2 and 3. We see that the first line of praise was the fact that this church had maintained doctrinal purity. Though they had strived for this, they had relentlessly defended the truth. And this is a very commendable quality. Now when the Apostle Paul left Ephesus, he warned the elders about the dangers of false teaching. This is recorded for us in the book of Acts. Now Paul spoke of men who would speak perverse things. No false teaching with, with the intention of drawing disciples away. Now, he describes them as wolves, and we know what wolves do to sheep. You know, that is the imagery. You know, Paul also warns Timothy about the devastating destruction that false teaching wreaks within a church. You know, he addresses this in both of the epistles to Timothy. You know, false teaching is like the demolition ball through the local assembly. And this church had taken heed to these warnings and they had strived for gospel purity. They had defended the truth. They had removed anything that was contrary to the gospel. Now verse 2 speaks of men who pretended to be apostles, you know, literally pseudo-apostles. And this church had tried these men and their teaching. That they had tested and examined it and found it to be wanting. That they determined that, that it was false and hence it was driven out. The cancer was removed. They had followed the teaching of 1 John, which is believed to be written to this church. They had tried the spirits to see whether they were of God. And they had removed that which was false. And they had avoided becoming courts in the web of doctrinal error. But not only this, they also preserved in the face of persecution. Persevered, sorry, not preserved. Persevered in the face of persecution. Now in verse 3 we see the phrase, and hast patience. This term patience speaks of endurance in the face of difficulty and challenging circumstances. Now the Greek term denotes a courageous acceptance of hardship, difficulty and and loss. Now, this could be a reference to the confrontation involved with the false teachers. You know that this required much work. This caused them much difficulty, but but it probably includes more than that. 
This commendation indicates that despite their difficult circumstances, despite the trials and the tribulations that they endured, despite despite the persecution from those around them, they, they continued to be faithful. They continued to live for Jesus. And this is a very admirable quality. To persevere in the face of difficulty. To continue on when the tides of trials and persecution is rapidly rising. And Jesus saw that this church had done this. That they had not thrown in the towel as soon as things got harder and went back to their previous way of life. And this was very admirable. There was a third thing that this congregation was praised for. And that is that they were diligent in serving the Lord. So Jesus acknowledges that this church had labored. Now this term speaks of toil, of strenuous work to the point of weariness. They were a diligent and hard working church. They were not just a bunch of pew warmers, but rather they were actively involved in serving the Lord. They they were using their gifts and laboring for the cause of Christ. And you know, this again is a very positive quality. A serving church is a good thing. This is what Jesus expects from us. He has not saved us to do nothing, but quite the contrary. And he wants us all to be diligently laboring for his cause. And this is something that the church at Ephesus exemplified. So, so far so good for this church. It seems that they are passing Jesus' inspection with flying colours. They're ticking all the right boxes. They look to be quite a quality congregation. They had defended doctrinal purity. They had persevered in the face of difficulty and they were diligent in serving Jesus. These are all admirable qualities. I'm sure these are traits that we want to see within a church. And I'm sure these are traits that we want to possess personally. And these are definite qualities that Jesus wants to see in his church. And I wonder how the church was feeling after the first part of this letter was read. You can imagine them feeling quite happy with themselves. Hey, we're going okay. Give themselves a little pat on the back. You can imagine them thinking, wow, this is good. Jesus is speaking so highly of us, but, but then it all changes. For the penetrating, omniscient gaze of Jesus identified a fatal flaw. And that's the second point that I want to consider, the criticism. Now, verse 4 begins with the word, nevertheless. And you can almost hear the gasp of disappointment from this congregation. You know, we, we thought we were going so well, but then the Lord says, but nevertheless, you know, a sobering word, despite all of these positives, despite this church looking so solid on the surface, there was a glaring flaw. And that was the fact that they had lost their first love. This is very emotive language. It's very picturesque. The image that immediately springs to my mind is a couple who were married very young and in time that they they separated. Perhaps you know a young couple who were high school sweethearts. They got married just out of school. Their relationship looked so strong that as time went by, the relationship dissolved. They departed their first love. 
Now that's a very apt illustration of what is betrayed in this phraseology. Now I want to draw your attention to the fact that it says that they left their first love. It's not that they, that they lost this accidentally, but rather there is a definite and sad departure. They no longer possess this love that they once did. You know, things are not like they used to be, for they had left this, they had abandoned this. Now the important interpretive question is who was the object of the love that they had abandoned? And believe it or not, there's actually a few varying opinions on this. It's not as easy as it appears on the surface. You know, some say that this refers to a love of each other. So there was no longer a love and unity and harmony within the local congregation that was once present. Their love for the brethren had waned, it had grown cold. Another suggestion is that this is speaking of love for those around them. Concern and care for the lost, for the unregenerate. So, So this was a church who once had a strong zeal for souls to come to Christ. That they were motivated by a care and concern for souls to be saved. But but now this evangelistic zeal was no longer present. This love reservoir was now empty. So, So that's option number two. But there is a third option. And that is that their love for Jesus was not what it once was. So they had cooled in their affection and passion for him. I believe that this refers, in this verse, primarily to a love for Jesus. Their love for Jesus had grown cold. The other two options would certainly be a result of a cooling love for Jesus. Because if you love God, if you love Christ, you will love the brethren and you will care for the lost. That's a natural fruit that is produced from a sincere love for Christ. And hence, it's, it's certainly reasonable to see all three aspects. But I believe the primary point is that their love for Christ had grown cold. And in my mind, this is the correct interpretation because of the remedy that is presented in verse 5. The medicine that is offered makes much more sense if love for Jesus is the primary meaning. But before we get to the cure, before we get to the medicine, we need to understand this disease. There was a deadly cancer growing within this church. On the surface, things look great. They defended doctrine. They they were steadfast. They separated from the wickedness around them. They were faithful in serving Jesus. Publicly, they looked so impressive. But privately, they had abandoned Christ. They were simply going through the motions. Their heart was not in it. Their, Their Christianity had degenerated into a mechanical orthodoxy. Yes, they were doing the right things, but their motivation was incorrect, for they were not motivated by a love for Christ. Now, within this church, there was now a lack of enthusiasm and desire for Jesus. Now, the fire of their first love for Christ, which once burnt so bright, was now but a smolder. Their hearts, their thoughts, their attitudes and desires were far from the Lord. 
Now, sure, they were still doing church, but it was with a disengaged heart. Now, and this reminds me of the Lord's rebuke in Isaiah 29, where he said, This people draw near with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. And, you know, this describes this congregation. And, you know, what, what a sad situation. Now, this church at Ephesus were doing church well on the surface, but, but there was no love for Jesus. Their relationship for Christ had grown distant and cold. Now there was a lack of devotion. They had forgotten the most important commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and might. You know, that they had left the the close relationship that they once enjoyed with Jesus. Now one author illustrated their lack of love like this. He said the lush green colour of springtime in the congregation had disappeared and the fading shades that characterise autumn are now present. Their love was once bright and vibrant for Christ, but now it was dull and fading. Now how devastating that this impressive church externally was so cold and distant from Christ internally. And you know, it reminds me that Jesus wants the believer's heart, not just our hands and our heads. It was the hearts of those who were serving within the church that were so far from the Lord. And notice in verse 5 how serious a problem this is. Jesus says, I will remove the candlestick. In other words, they will cease to exist. Jesus would remove his presence, that they would become a church of Ichabod. The glory of the Lord would depart. That, my friend, is the seriousness of the situation. Now, without love for Christ, the church will die spiritually. You know, as Spurgeon said, a church has no reason for being a church when she has loss, well, sorry, when she has no love within her heart, or when that love grows cold. Lose love, lose all. And this is the predicament that the church at Ephesus were in. They were simply going through the motions with a disengaged heart. That they had left their first love of Jesus. That they were not as close to Him as they once were. You know, that their love and care for Him had grown cold and dim. And that Christianity had become mere mechanical orthodoxy. Rather than a loving relationship with Christ. You know, the fountain of their love for Him had grown dry. And what you and I need to understand is how susceptible we as a church and as individuals are to this very problem. Don't deceive yourself. This is a very real issue right now. If Jesus was to pronounce the results of an inspection on your heart, I wonder how many of us would receive the same verdict that we have left our first love. Would we, as a church, be told this same thing? Because how easy it is to go through the motions. You know, as a church, you know, we care about the truth. I have no doubt about that. You know, we would like to think that we would persevere despite the difficulties. And we serve the Lord. We can do these things and yet our heart can be far from Jesus. You know, this is such an easy trap to fall into. Particularly in conservative evangelical churches. 
Now, to have a wonderful public appearance, to look like a strong church, to look like a strong Christian. But if we are perfectly honest with ourselves, it, it, it can become a facade. It can become a veneer for our hearts can grow cold towards the Lord. Our love can lessen. You know, we are not as close to Jesus as we once were. Our devotion has diminished. We're simply going through the motions. We have left our first love. And beloved, we must comprehend that a church without love for Jesus will cease to be a church. That is the warning. And hence, as individuals, we must examine ourselves. We we need to search our hearts and, and be honest with ourselves. And perhaps the Holy Spirit is pricking your heart this morning. Oh, the light of the word has been shone in and your heart is cold and distant. Sure, nobody else may see it. Nobody else may may have a clue. You may be fooling everybody else, but my friend, remember, you can't fool Jesus and stop fooling yourself. Our God wants your heart. A loving relationship with Jesus Christ, that is what the Christian life is, is all about. And maybe you don't have that love for him that you once did. You know, my friend, this is such an easy trap to fall into. You know, I, I know as a pastor, this is one of the biggest issues for me. You know, it, it is so easy to go through the motions. Come to church, week in, week out, serve Jesus, be involved, visit, prepare and preach, sing songs, keep up appearances, and yet my heart can grow cold and distant. Now, I know this is a very real issue for me, and perhaps I'm not alone. You know, maybe right now your heart is far from the Lord. My friend, why not return to your first love? Return to how it used to be walking closely with Jesus. But the question is, how, how can this be done? How can we return to our first love? Well, verse 5 gives us three simple steps. Remember, repent, and do the first works. Remember, recall what your love used to be like. Oh, it's like the prodigal son. He remembered what his life was like with his father. He wanted that back. And and my friend, remember what life used to be like when you were walking close to Jesus. Remember how great and joyful it was. Remember experiencing closeness with him. Remember that fire that burnt so brightly. Remember these things. Remember who Jesus is. Remember what what he has done. We need to constantly be in remembrance. For love often grows cold when we are forgetful and take things for granted. We're told that we must also repent. This means to have a change of mind. Acknowledge and admit that there is a problem. Denial will not fix the issue. Come to the Lord, confess your coldness, confess your distance and seek his grace and forgiveness and strength to make it right. And my friends, if you do this, it will be granted to you. You will be forgiven. That is a promise from God. And we're also told to do the first works. These are the basic things. Rekindle the desire to pray. Spend time in the Word. Worship biblically. Tell others about Christ. 
enjoy fellowship with the saints, sing psalms and hymns, meditate in the scriptures and so on. It's doing these simple things, partaking of these common means of grace that will rekindle a love for Christ. And beloved, the good news is if you have left your first love, you can return. Now, like the prodigal son, you can return to the Lord. He will be waiting for you with outstretched arms. He, he will forgive, embrace, and, and take you back. Now, return to the Lord. He will not cast you out. Now, you can enjoy that close relationship that you once enjoyed with Jesus. Now, stop wondering and return to the Lord. And, you know, perhaps... You know, your love for the Lord is, is burning brightly. You know, praise, praise Him for that. But, you know, may, may we possess a holy alertness to the devastating danger of leaving that love. Of our Christian life of becoming empty orthodoxy. Of simply going through the motions of just keeping up an external appearance. For my friend, the Christian life is meant to be so much more than that. It's meant to be so much greater than that. You know, may our love for Jesus be growing each and every day. You know, for that is so vital for the church to grow and flourish. Because if there's no love for Christ, then this church will die. And my friend, it starts with you. Now, each individual has a responsibility to ensure that they themselves have not left their first love. And you know, may we all, in God's grace and strength, possess a real Christianity. Or enjoy a close and intimate relationship with Jesus. May our love for Him be motivating all that we do and say. And may we be growing every day. You know, I wonder how much more could be done for the Lord if we all return to our first love. And what, what a difference it would make if all of us as individuals truly loved the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and minds. You know, what a difference that would make. You know, may it never be said of you and may it never be said of me that we have left our first love. But as I said before, if you have this morning, return. Return to the Lord and, and make, make it right. Don't continue the mere external observance. Don't, don't rob yourself of the blessed privilege of walking closely to Jesus. Don't forfeit the great joy of a relationship with Christ. You know, may our love for Jesus be cultivated and growing each and every day. May our love for Jesus be abounding, be, be, be overflowing and not abandoned. You know, may it never be said of this church that it has left its first love. Amen. Let's pray.